you may have noticed that almost always the first thing that a, the priest does when I come into Mass, I go up and kiss the altar, and then the last thing I do is I kiss the altar before I leave. Um, the reason for that is this is the most important spot in the church. I don't go over and kiss the tabernacle, and that has the Eucharist, the, the presence of Christ in, in the sacrament of Eucharist. I don't even touch the tabernacle, but I kiss the altar. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm very careful where I put my lips. You know, you just don't kiss anything or anyone, am I right? You know, you be careful about it. But kissing that altar, it probably doesn't move you, but it's very moving to me all the time. And it centers my brain right away on the significance of the table of the Lord, the altar. This is where Eucharist happens. Now, if you go down to the cathedral and you stand in the body of the church and look up at the altar and the cross and everything, you won't even see the Eucharist. It's in a side chapel. You have to go through a, another door to enter into this little chapel to be where the Eucharist is in the tabernacle. And in many churches, um, like this one was built uh, during and after the council, but uh, for churches, say, 20 years later, they started uh, building them where sometimes they had a, an outside chapel or a chapel attached, and so that the, the tabernacle wasn't visible when you were in the body of the church. You had to go into this special place. Now, why I think this is so important is because it really is asking of us to understand what we do, not just what we receive, but what we do, and what it is supposed to do to us. So in the first reading, we hear this story of God taking care of his people wandering in the desert for 40 years because they started complaining. The Jews were always complaining, we're hungry, you put us out here in the desert to die and starve. So God sent down this manna from heaven, bread from heaven. It was uh, hoarfrost, something that looked like a frost. They gathered up and eat it, and it was their bread, and it saved them from starvation. So Jesus says in the gospel, I'm the bread of life. But then he goes further, and he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you. But if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have life within you. In fact, you'll never die. You'll live forever. Now, yes and no, and we have to unpack this. Because, um, first of all, the, the Jews gave the correct response. It, it, it would even be revolting for us, if I said, here, I'm going to cut off my fingers, who wants to eat my fingers today? Oh, good Lord, Father, get out of here. You know, we don't eat people's flesh, and we don't drink their blood. It's revolting, and it's cannibalistic, and that's exactly how the Jews responded. The Jews found that the most vulgar, disgusting thing possible, to ask to drink somebody's blood. They didn't even drink animal blood. They just didn't do it, made them unclean. So what is Jesus doing? Now, after he says this and the Jews start quarreling, he didn't back down and say, well, no, I didn't really mean that. I mean, you know, I'm just using an example. He said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He said, I'm the bread. In the story from the Old Testament, the bread sent from heaven was something. In the gospel, it's someone. And Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the bread from heaven. Eat and drink of me. And what I think Jesus is saying, if we look at it in the most simple, the smallest literal way, 
then we're revolted. But if that becomes the avenue or the door to opening it up and really taking a look at this, he's saying, eat every part of me, drink every part of me, all of my words, all of my actions, my living and dying on the cross, my resurrection, all of my teaching. He, he's, he's asking us to eat this, eat this, drink this. When he says, you've heard it said that you should love your countrymen, but hate your enemies, but I tell you, love your enemies. What I tell you is pray for those who hate you. What I tell you is bless those, bless those who persecute you. And it's exactly what he did on the cross. They stripped him, beat him, spit on him, shoved a crown of thorns in his head, nailed him to a cross, lifted him to the cross, and he had every right to curse them and hate them. Truly, they were his enemies. But he said, Father, forgive them all. They know not what they do. Now that's a mouthful to eat. That's something to drink. But if we give this much to Jesus the Christ and say, Lord, I believe you're the Son of God and your word is divine, and I don't like your word sometimes. Your word is too tough, Lord. You don't know some of the enemies I have and how much I hate them. You ask me to bless them and, and, and pray for them. But because you say it, Lord, you are the bread of life. And I will take this in as my food and my drink. And slowly but surely, I believe you will nourish me and grow me into that kind of a person. But stop and think of it. The second reading connects the two beautifully. In the second reading, um, Paul uses a beautiful image because Jesus the Last Supper uh, he said he took bread, like a loaf of bread, he blessed it, then broke it into pieces and gave it to them. This is my body, eat it. Took the cup full of wine, and he said, this is my blood, drink it. And he gave them what clearly, visibly, was bread and wine. But somehow, he was describing how he wanted to be present through that for us. Now, personally, I think the spiritual is the most important part of us. The physical is the most direct and visible and how we operate, everything through our body and, you know, through the physical. But think of it this way, um, and I've used this example many times, so let me bore you one more time, because it just was the one that made it all make sense to me uh, 35 or so or more years ago. I had a couple come in from Mexico City that were going to celebrate their 50th anniversary the next day. They came in on a Friday. They came up here because their kids were living in L.A. And um, my parents had celebrated three or four years before. I think a 50th anniversary was a wonderful event. So they come in and they went to confession. I won't tell you the confession, but before I heard her confession, and I'll call her Lupe, I don't remember her name, she sat there and I said, Lupe, you must be so excited. Imagine. 50 years of marriage, and she goes like this, Padre, mi matrimonio es mi cruz. My marriage is my cross. And I thought for sure I misunderstood her Spanish, so I said, Lupe, what did you say? She said, my marriage is my cross. So I said to her, Lupe, why would you say that? Because I really didn't know. And she said, Father, there's no love or friendship, but I married uh, for the rest of my life. 
She said, we have a little house, thank you, God. Beautiful children, they're my great joy, but there's no love or friendship, and I'm married to him for the rest of my life. My marriage is my cross. And only those who speak Spanish will appreciate this, but being the educated man I was, I didn't say anything, but I thought, híjole. <laughs> um, so the next day I had to witness, and I knew I was going to have to do this, see them take hands in front of everybody and put on this show and say, I promise I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. And I'm thinking in my head, uh-huh, really? And it bothered me for the next week. I, I, I image in my head of after she said what she said to me, I didn't ask him, but whoa. So the next Saturday, I had a, a, a wedding of a young couple that were madly in love, of course, and you know how they blink, every blink is, I love you, I love you. And so there they were when they said their vows, I promise I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. And like a light, it went on, I said, ah, I should have rewritten the vows of the, the 50 years married couple and should have had them say, I promise I will live with you until I die. Now that is not the sacrament. That is sticking out an obligation. Doing it because I have to. Doing it because what, that pleases God? I don't think so. But that's rules of the church, you know. But, but the sacrament is living a love that puts Christ right at the center. It's one of the sacraments. And we say Christ is revealed in marriage, in priesthood, in, in, in confession, the sacrament of penance, in the Eucharist, equally. God's not more present in the Eucharist, but it's more explicit that we eat and drink the presence of Christ. And Christ becomes food for our spirit. It's very rich. It's very powerful. But that second reading says, as Jesus breaks the bread and distributes it, he said that this one loaf, because we eat this one loaf that is broken and blessed and broken and given to us, we become the loaf. And so I have the big host up there that I'll lift up a couple times in the past and I break it. And symbolically, I'm breaking all of it, but actually the other hosts are already broken there. But when we eat that, we all become that one loaf that was broken and shared. We become the body of Christ. That's the whole point of this Eucharist. And why is that important? Because if we really are eating and drinking the presence of Christ, taking him and his word and his teaching and his example into our lives and becoming the body of Christ, when we leave here, the real action begins. We've been fed we drank in Christ our Lord and his word so that we could take him out in the world through us. And then every act of love and generosity and kindness and justice and peace and forgiveness, everything that we do that lives the gospel takes Christ out there, gives Christ to the world. It's extraordinary. Now, it becomes even more dramatic today because of Kingston, who doesn't know what he's about to receive. And I hope he loves water and he's a swimmer because he's going to get dumped, right? And he's got a happy smile on his face, so I'm happy to hear that. But he doesn't know what's happening. He may remember, I doubt it. How old is he? Two? One. Okay, thank you, big sister. He won't remember this. He won't even remember. But if he did, all he would know is that water was poured on him, and he either liked it or didn't like it. 
But that's where the role of parents and godparents come in, to teach him. You know, lots of times with, with Latinos, um, you know, they're, they're teaching them. Well, there's a, a couple that have, a Filipino couple that come to this Mass usually, and um, their little daughter would call me Jesus all the time because they come to the church, to God's house, and, and so they said, well, this is where Jesus is. And so when they'd see this goofy man up there in all these different clothes, nobody's like him, and he says, uh, says a phrase like, the Lord be with you, and everybody responds to him. She just identified me as Jesus. This happens a lot. In the Spanish masses, sometimes the kids will even say, bye, Diosito, to me. Um, they mix it up. But she doesn't do it anymore, they told me. She learned that I'm not Jesus. So whatever he is or thinks or believes uh, as he grows a little older, like his sister is older, she understands. Slowly but surely, he'll deepen and grow in his faith. But the real thing is this. When he's old enough to receive the Eucharist and understand that he's receiving the body of Christ, and when he goes further, because it probably takes longer for a kid to understand that I become the body of Christ. And then when he understands, because I've become the body of Christ, I have to bring Christ into the world and make the world a better world. And I can do that with Christ alive in me. Christ alive in me. So, in this very dramatic way, we get to bring him into this place, which he won't understand perfectly now, but slowly but surely he will. 